We are going to look at God's Word this morning, and um, I'm going to be looking at portions of Genesis chapter, chapters 37 through 45. Uh, my sermon is going to be different than um, what it says in the bulletin. Um, I'll be alluding to this, but as I worked through this passage again this past week, I felt that I had to bring a more panoramic view of Genesis, that uh, we couldn't just pull this out of context, uh, but that instead uh, we see that this is a part of, of God's eternal plan. It's a powerful story. Um, and I, I want to, to do justice to this story. And so stay with me uh, as you open your Bibles. I'm not going to be putting this on the overhead this morning, but if you would uh, turn with me to this portion of Scripture, some of you may have read this this past week, but we find um, the hidden depths of sin. This, is, this family of Jacob is a very broken family. Hatred has come up, and uh, there is a plot to kill Joseph, um, he's sold into slavery. He ends up in the home of Potiphar. And we, we read about that in uh, Genesis chapter 39. We, if you've read ahead, you'll find that uh, in Genesis 38, there's a story about Judah and Tamar. And I, I chose not to preach on that this morning, but it is a very important chapter because you'll find that that even though something horrible happened, an incestual relationship took place, um, Judah has, has sex with Tamar, who plays the prostitute, and they have two sons. And these sons are mentioned in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you turn to Matthew 1, you'll find their names. It's really an amazing thing that God places himself in the ancestry of someone such as Judah. And I'm hoping to make the point today and next week that the story is not really about Joseph at all. It's about Judah. It's about Jacob, the sons of, uh, of Jacob, and then particularly about Judah. And so um, this morning we're going to begin by looking at... Uh, um, some chapters fast-forwarding from chapter 37 that we looked at last week. But I want to begin by just sharing a little story with you. Um, I don't know how many of you know my brother Mark, but he's sitting right over here. I know Mark quite well. My brother Mark was called by St. Peter to go to heaven, and I think it was kind of a, a pre-check sort of a uh, midterm exam to see how this man was doing. And St. Peter escorted Mark down a long hallway full of clocks. And the hands of the clocks were moving at different speeds. Peter explained that every person has a clock. When they sin, the clock ticks. So Mark looks over and saw a clock that was barely moving 
And Peter said, that belongs to Billy Graham. He looked at another clock, and St. Peter says, that one belongs to Mother Teresa. Mark asked, I'm curious, could I see my clock? And Peter said, yeah, we keep it in the office, and we use it as a fan. I had permission. Sometimes it's difficult for us to uh, contemplate going into a message that this is going to be a message about sin. But I was online a couple of months ago following a a well-known pastor, and the pastor said, that 99.9% of people are good. And shortly after I watched this video of his message, I turned uh, on YouTube to a, a different program, and I saw the story of a man named El Chapo. He is, or was an, a Mexican drug lord. And I followed the story of this man who built tunnels, I believe, in El Paso and Tijuana, different places. And he got local men to help him build these tunnels, hundreds of men. And they worked for months and months building tunnels through which El Chapo could funnel his cocaine. When these workers were done, El Chapo lined them all up in a private place at night and killed them dead so that they would not pass on to others the location of these tunnels. 99.9% of the hearts of people are good. That's not what the Bible says. And then I I heard another pastor say that uh, uh, the thought that a good God would look at a gentle and innocent couple like Adam and Eve and get angry with them for eating an apple or a piece of fruit is stupid. Undercutting the doctrine of original sin. sin. But what we have here in Genesis is a story that begins with original sin. And then we find, once Adam and Eve fall into sin, that civilization is trying to form itself without God, and it's not going very well. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord initiates contact with Abraham. It's not because Abraham was so good. It's not because Abraham was seeking God. God initiates the relationship. He comes to to Abraham, and he begins the work of, the process that's going to be centuries long that leads to the coming of the seed of David, a man called, a God-man called Jesus Christ. So today, I'm excited to share this word with you. And we're going to look at this familiar story. And I'm wondering, how many times have we looked at this story? How many times have you read the story of Joseph? And, though, and oftentimes, when things are familiar, we miss the details. I'd like for you to look at this story maybe through fresh eyes this morning 
and realize that maybe it's different than the way we've taught it before. Because I think it's very easy for us to say, look at Joseph. He was faithful. And as he was faithful through the difficulties of his life, he ended up on top of the heap. There are those who will share a materialistic dream with you. They'll say that Joseph was faithful even though times were difficult, and because he was faithful, uh, he ends up second man in charge, and he's riding the second best chariot in the land of Egypt. That's quite the opposite of what God is really teaching us in the story of Joseph. Okay, let's turn together, and let's, well, let's, let's first look at some background, and uh, you'll have to forgive me because this is, in fact, a brand new sermon. I, I want us to look at, first of all, how the book of Genesis is divided, and as you read the book, you're going to find genealogies. Eleven times a phrase is used in the book of Genesis, and every time the story takes a new turn. These are called accounts, or genealogies, or toledotes. There's the generation in chapter 224 of the heavens and the earth. 5-1, the generation of Adam. 6-9, the generation of Noah all the way through 11 of them to uh, chapter 37, verse 2. And there we find the last key character in the book of Genesis, and it's not Joseph. It's the generation, generation or the account, the Toledot, of Jacob. And so based on the structure of the book of Genesis, the story is about Jacob and Judah. But there's another way we can look at the book of Genesis. And these are like lampposts for us as we read through. There are three themes that continue to reoccur over and over again in the book of Genesis. Number one, land. Everlasting possession, land. Number two, seed, offspring. He brings out of a fallen humanity, offspring, if you will, seed that is going to lead to the coming of Christ. And the third one that keeps reoccurring because people uh, fall into sin, and it's the word covenant. God initiates this relationship. He comes eventually to Abraham and says, I'm your God. You're going to become a great nation. I'm going to be with the people. I expect your worship and obedience. Don't sell out for a pot of lentil stew. Covenant. We've got land. We've got seed. We've got uh, covenant. And even in the creation account, we find it. We find that God creates the heaven and the earth, the land, then he creates plants with their seeds, multiplying fruit and vegetables. Then in chapter 2, man is created, and we get covenant. And after the fall of mankind, in chapter 3, uh, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the land, if you will. But then there's a covenant, and this first covenant goes, or promise is made to Satan. 
to the serpent, God says, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And there's the antagonism between people, can I say it, and snakes. It's used as, to symbolize the outcome of this titanic struggle between God and the evil one, between God's people and the evil one. The, the, the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. Every time there's a repeat of this covenant, as in Genesis 12, um, we find Abram before he becomes Abraham, and we have this covenant. And I'm going to make you a great nation, offspring, seed. And I'm going to give you this land. Over and over again, this comes up in Genesis. All right, what does this have to do with Joseph? I, I, I hope this morning that maybe a new look at this will change the way we teach this story to our children. I'm always leery when I see books that, sh that says heroes of the faith, men of the faith, men, heroes, and, and women who are heroes of the faith. Uh, they're only heroes because God's initiated a relationship with them, because God has come and has changed their hearts and is developing their characters so that they will be the true representatives of Israel into the world. But we must not look at this and say, look at this guy Joseph. I mean, he went through a really tough time, but by the end, he's driving a Rolls Royce, people. And I heard that sermon. I heard it a couple of different times this past week. But now... We come to Joseph. We're going to get to the passage in just a minute. He's got three sets of dreams. First, there's a pair of dreams that he shares with his brothers that didn't go so well. His brothers despise him. They hate him because he's the favored son of Jacob um, who gets the fancy coat. Now there's this dream about the sheaves of grain uh, bowing down before Joseph's sheaf. And the brothers are going, you think that we're going to bow down to you? It ain't going to happen. Little did they know. And so when they get the opportunity, they decide to kill him. They don't. Instead, they sell him into slavery. Um, and this is because of those initial dreams. And then he's in prison. And how did he get in prison? Well, if you've read this, you find that he was sold to Potiphar. He's placed in Potiphar's house. And somewhere along the way, Joseph decides that instead of compounding the troubles and living in bitterness towards God and others, he's going to be a blessing in this family. And we find that wherever he goes, he prospers simply because it says repeatedly, God's with him. And he knows it. God's with him. And God is so with him, and the grace of God is so covering him like, like the gift of a coat from his dad that um, a woman looks at him, Potiphar's wife, and she's in a place of power, 
And look how she uses power to get what she wants. But Joseph is also in a place of power. He's in charge of the entire household of Potiphar. She looks at him, and the Bible's very clear that, uh, you know, women always like this part. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't really mean to uh, overgeneralize, but it says that Joseph was tall, dark, and handsome. And she noticed him. And so she makes a move on Joseph, and notice that Joseph says, can't do it, I can't sin against Potiphar, and the responsibilities he's given me, but more importantly, I cannot sin against God. It's not a pious statement. God is so with him, and he has so absorbed the grace of God. He's so representing God that he can't do it. Uh, she, he tries to get away, she rips the coat, goes to her husband, said, this guy tried to seduce me. He ends up in jail or prison, Pharaoh's prison, and he meets a baker and a cupbearer. And he interprets their dreams. One, excellent. The other, not so good. One gets his job back, the other loses his head. Then, Joseph tells uh, the cupbearer, remember me, that's all I ask, remember me when you get out of jail. Uh, And he doesn't remember him until Pharaoh has a couple of dreams. And then the king's servant uh, comes to Pharaoh and says, you know what, there's a guy in prison who interpreted dreams for me. And, And here's Pharaoh's dream. You know, seven healthy cows and seven six Uh, sick cows. The sick cows eat up the healthy cows, and the sick corn eats up the healthy corn. And Joseph interprets this dream. He goes to Pharaoh and says, there's a famine coming after seven years of abundance, and the abundance of the land will be not be remembered because the famine that follows will be so severe. So Joseph tells them to store up the harvest during those seven years of plenty so that you can have grain, seed, during the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh looked at Joseph and said, You are my man. End of sermon. Right? I mean, often, the way we look at this story, we're saying, now, Joseph has arrived. This is just the beginning of the sermon. I I know we've got communion in a while. I understand that. And I'm not going to preach the whole message this morning. But what we're going to pick up on is in Genesis chapter 41. Look with me at Genesis chapter 41, verses 37 following. And I want you to read this like people who haven't read it before. And what I want you to see is the irony of this story. And when you see this irony, you will understand why the story is not about Joseph at all. Look at verse 37, chapter 41. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials, and that is that Joseph said, you're going to have to put an administrator over the land, you're going to have to collect the grain and have to save it because famine's coming. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man Uh, one in whom is the Spirit of God. 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Now let's stop right there. This is ironic. Why? Why do Joseph's brothers hate him? Because of a couple of dreams. God gives Joseph a couple of dreams. Joseph interprets them rightly, even though there was some immaturity in the way he did it. Which means that Joseph gave his brothers the word of God. They not only don't believe Joseph, but they hate him because of the word of God that came through him. Now I talked about the pattern of God's grace that is found in this whole story of Joseph. Jesus later would come and his own would not even receive him. He brings the word they wouldn't receive him. Now Joseph stands before a pagan king, the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I believe you. That's irony and it's meant to be ironic. That's not good. It's not good that the covenant people of God don't believe God's messenger, but this pagan believes God's messenger. That's a problem. Then in verse 39, Pharaoh says to Joseph, Since God has made all of this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge. Now, by the way, Pharaoh doesn't know Yahweh. He is talking about the supernatural. He understands it's divine. He understands that this is Joseph's God. But he doesn't know Yahweh. You shall be in charge of what? My house. You're going to be in charge of my palace. Now stop there again. Every house that Joseph serves in prospers. The humility of God is in this man, and he recognizes that my place in life is to bless other people wherever God has placed me. Even in the midst of temptation, even in the middle of a prison, I am going to point to God. I want to bless others. But whose house is Joseph supposed to be prospering? Jacob's house. So when you hear Pharaoh saying, you shall be in charge of my house, you're supposed to be reading this and see the irony and say, wrong house. Now that isn't to say that God doesn't want his people to be a blessing to the nations. He already told Abraham that. But now Joseph is in the house of Pharaoh and he's going to do whatever he can to honor God in the place God has placed him. There's more. Verse 40. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are, submit to, are to submit to your orders. Okay. Um, well, I think we need to, to jump to verse 40, 43. We read that already. It says, um, Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot 
uh, as his second in command, and men shouted before him, make way. But if you read in the footnotes, uh, the people are shouting, bow down! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Land, seed, covenant. What land is Joseph supposed to be in? In the promised land. In the land of his father, the, 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 the land of the patriarchs. He's supposed to be in the land of Canaan. But in the land of Canaan, when you're in Canaan, Canaan uh, the theological opposite of Cana, Canaan is Egypt. Wrong house, wrong land. Do you think the author Moses is trying to tell us something here? Let's keep reading. Verse 41, verse 42. It says, Pharaoh put a robe on him. Wrong robe. By this robe that his father put on him, he is to be identified as one who is loved and approved by his father. He's in the wrong house, in the wrong land, with the wrong coat, and essentially now he has the wrong father. Again, not good. If we're reading this honestly, how can we at this point be saying, Moses is trying to lead us into the conclusion that Joseph is to receive a material blessing. That's not it. And men shouted before him, bow the knee. Another irony. His brothers want to kill him. His family wants to kill him. They don't want to bow down before this younger brother. But a pagan king says to his people, bow down, and the Egyptians gladly do it. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh said, uh, let's look on here. Verse 45, Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Now, when we read Daniel, uh, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they get new names for the Babylonians, and we don't go, wow, what a blessing. We don't think this is a great thing. Because they are brought into this foreign kingdom, and they're given new names, and it's an insult. It's an insult to the people of God. It's an insult to the God of Israel. And their covenant names are taken away from them. Shadrach, Meshach, and uh, as my son-in-law would say, a bad Negro. We're supposed to be offended by this. Do you see the same pattern at work in our society where the culture is trying to define us? The culture is trying to lure us in. The culture is trying to give us a different identity than that for which we were created by God to give Him honor. And that's what's going on here, that same pattern. There's more. And he gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, to be his wife. Wrong wife. Not only is she a worshiper of the Egyptian god Ra, the sun god, but she's the daughter of the priest of Ra. How come? 
Now Solomon wanted to gain leverage from foreign kings, so he married their daughters. Solomon was warned to put away these wives, not because they're foreign, not because of their ethnicity, because they had a different God, a different theology. In Daniel, we say it's wrong, but here we say, yes, children, be like Joseph. That's not the point. If you're faithful, you can end up in the wrong land, in the wrong house, the wrong father, wrong robe, wrong name, wrong wife. Hallelujah. Now let's keep reading. Verse 46. It says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's been 13 years since he left his father. All right, and Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. He's making his name known. Okay. Now, Joseph, it says, has two sons. Let's go uh, to 50. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. Joseph called the firstborn Manasseh and said, It's because God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. The second name, uh, son to be named Ephraim. And he said, It's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Two sons. And notice, he gave both sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. And this is an important point. He gave them covenantal names saying, I belong to Yahweh. Joseph is identifying with the people of God, with the covenant, with God's covenant. Now, let's, let's look at the meaning of this name, Manasseh. The Hebrew name. It's because God has made me forget all my troubles. And if I were to translate this, the word Manasseh means, I'm trading my sorrows. For the joy of the Lord. Or another way of putting it, um, I've just got to let go of the past and all of the hurts. I've got to let go. Now, how does that work? Now, listen to this. Hey, Zephaniah, Zephanath Paneah, lovely day. Yes, it is, he says. I see that you and your lovely Egyptian wife, Asenath, have had a child. Yes, yep, we have. Boy, you're living the dream. Here you are now in Egypt. You came out of as a small town boy, uh, shepherds, and Egyptians don't like you shepherds. But now you're in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth up to that date. You're second in command. You've got a wife and a child. You ride around in the second nicest chariot in the country. Wow, what's your boy's name? Manasseh. Well, that sounds Hebrew. It is Hebrew. Why would you give your boy a Hebrew name? When it is Ra, the Egyptian god, who's given you all of this stuff. And Joseph says, because I'm Hebrew. Pharaoh might be able to change my name, but he doesn't get to name my sons. And my sons are children of the covenant of God, just like me. That's interesting, because why would you name your son after the Hebrew people who abandoned you? Because I let that stuff go. Didn't they sell you into slavery? Yes, but I've traded my sorrows for the joy of the Lord. 
They didn't care enough to come back to Egypt to look for you. You're absolutely right. But I let that stuff go. And I am thinking that if there's an application here for the people of God, some of us need a Manasseh. There are things represented in this room this morning that need to be let go and handed over to the Lord. What, what if, what if, what if uh, Joseph continued to harbor a grudge towards his brothers, hatred, and say, you know what, now I'm living the dream. You know, here I am riding high in this chariot if my brothers could only see me now. Comes rolling in with this silvery or golden chariot. Hey guys, look at me now. I've got a better robe than I ever had before. Some of you will say, yeah, I've got problems, I have trust issues, I've been hurt. They did this to me. Manasseh, please let that stuff go. That is not what defines you. I know this is controversial, but I come out of the reservation. And there is a growing movement on the reservation to look at the atrocities done to Native Americans. And they're real, and and I've been looking at them. But if you come to the heart of the Christian community and say, we need to uncover all of this stuff, we need to replay everything that's been done to Native Americans, we need to do this in order to rub your face in uh, the sins that you committed, and I believe me, I have retraced the steps of the Nez Perce and Chief Joseph, and it has pained me, and I needed to do it. And yet that's not the gospel. Manasseh, let go of that stuff so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can move forward. If we keep going back to the past, if we keep uncovering the past, and we can do that with each other, you did that to me. Manasseh. But if you think the name of his first son was powerful, we're getting close to the end now. Just in case they didn't get the message. Oh, Zaphonapaneah, I see you had another son. I guess you gave him a Hebrew name too. Yes, I did. What does his name mean? God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Now, wait a minute. Help me understand, because you became fruitful here in Egypt. That's weird, because the land of your sufferings would be the place where they hated you, put you in a pit to be sold as a slave. Wouldn't that be the land of your suffering? Oh, that's not the land of my suffering. Egypt is the land of my suffering. Why? Because I'm part of the covenant people of God, and the place for me to be is in the land of the promise. And I don't care how wealthy this land appears, there is no wealth like being in the presence of God. Anything outside of the presence of God's people is the land of my suffering. Now, I have heard people say to missionaries, why would you choose to move to Nairobi, Kenya? Why would you move to the slums of India? We support a gal who's working in China. It's not, a, uh, not an easy place. We support our youth leader's daughter who's working in China. And sometimes people say, why do you need to make it hard on yourself? You must have messed, bad, messed up bad in, in your church to, to be going off to China. And I'm glad that you asked that question because 
I have an opportunity to tell you today, the missionaries will say, I'm looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And until I get there, wherever I live is the land of my suffering. People, this is not my home. This is not as good as it gets. Our best day here on earth pales in comparison to any day in glory. We are citizens of a new Jerusalem. This is not the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be, and I wrote in the, in the, on the margin of my sermon, a place like Ellsworth or Atwood. You know better. Not even Ellsworth or Atwood can compare to what God has in store. This is the land of our suffering. But hold on. Be very careful. Because Joseph lives in the same tension that the Apostle Paul lived in. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Heaven's our home. But in the meantime, please man your post and advance the kingdom wherever the Lord has called you. But never get too comfortable in this world because no matter where it is or however good it is, at the end of the day, this is the land of our suffering. Now, I I can't believe I'm preaching this because I'm retired. I have finally gotten to the time where I don't have to suffer anymore. I don't have to bear burdens anymore. I'm identified as a retired man. And the Lord says, you know what, things are going to change up a bit. You're going to have time to do some things, you know, that maybe you haven't done before. But this, Mike, is not your home. There's a city waiting for you. And until you get to that city, I want you to bloom where you're planted. I want you to be a light wherever I send you. I want you to impact the lives of those who are in Egypt. I want you to be a blessing to the world. Not just stand back all the time and criticize. You know, that's what we old guys do. We get together for coffee, solve the problems of the world by criticizing. That's not what God calls us to do. God calls us to bless those who don't deserve a blessing so that they will see that we are the true Israel, that we identify with the God who loves them, the God who wants to change this world. And so that's how we are to live. Next week, we're going to come back. I'm going to stop here abruptly, and I'm going to talk some more about why this is the story of Judah. This is the story of Judah, the great, 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 great grandpa of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you believe that grace is amazing? I have cousins who are looking at the ancestry of the Mikoff family. Did you know that, Mark? I, I didn't know that. I have cousins who, uncles, I think, who've looked at the ancestry of the Veenstra family, and, and I keep looking for kings and queens and business people who are making oodles of money. I can't find them. I, my, my ancestry is, well, in the eyes of the world, <laughs> you know, 
Now, enough on that. But my identity is not where I live. My identity is not the clothes I wear. My identity is not the truck that I drive. The identity is not how much money I have in the bank. My identity is in the robe of Jesus Christ that he gave a prodigal son and said, you are my son, and you are my son forever, and I want you to represent me wherever you go, and I will give you the strength to do it. That's the message to all of us this morning. Amen? Now, we take communion, and we call upon God's presence. We don't just remember that uh, this was done for us. We, we are reminded in the communion that Jesus is here. And that he's feeding us 